You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, amen to what Josiah has just now prayed. And in this moment, as I come to preach, help me, please and help us send your spirit and his power to open our hearts so that we can receive what you have for us today according to your will. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So today, I wanna talk to you about asking God to do harmful things to bad people. And if you're wondering if you just heard what you think you heard, you did, I think, right? There is a biblical way of praying called imprecation. And it's when the one praying is asking God to do harmful things to bad people. The one praying is asking God to curse their enemies. That's the central theme here of Psalm 58. David is asking God to judge the wicked by intervening to disarm them and destroy them. And this morning, we're going to look closer at this, and we're going to consider whether we should pray this way, the way we see here in Psalm 58. But before we get there, before we we really look closer and dive in here into Psalm 58, I want to lay down some train tracks that I think will help us understand the psalm. So I need you to use your imagination for a minute and imagine an old train track, okay? You've seen these before. You know what a train track looks like. There are two basic parts to a train track. There are the, the, uh, the, uh, the ties, the railroad ties, which run horizontally. You guys have seen these. are the ones that they go this way. They're usually wooden. The, the ties go this way. And then on top of the ties, there are the two rails, and the two rails, you know, so imagine if the train is like going like this, the, the ties are this way and the rails run like this. There are two rails, okay? You guys got that in your mind, a train track with two rails? Okay, so now when it comes to Psalm 58, there are two rails here, as it were, that we need to understand in order to understand the psalm. Um, if when we read this psalm, And as we're reading it, if it feels kind of bumpy for us, like if there's, as we read Psalm 58, if it's just not sitting right, if it's uncomfortable for us, when we read Psalm 58, the problem is not with the psalm, the problem's with us. And it has to do with the two rails. If the psalm's uncomfortable, We need to check the rails. Okay, so let's talk about these rails. Here's rail number one. Rail number one is the fact that this psalm, all the psalms, are ancient poetry. And I think we get the poetry part. It's the ancient part that I think we more easily forget. And so I just want to remind you that the psalms were written a very long time ago. 
In fact, Psalm 58 was probably written around 1010 B.C., which means that's old enough that the oldness of it alone should amaze us, right? I mean, we should just, we, we should just be amazed by how old this psalm and all the psalms are, but sometimes I think we take the ancientness of the Bible as a whole, and of the psalms in particular, we take the ancientness for granted. And this occurred to me recently in a fresh way, because a couple weeks ago, I had some time on vacation, and so as I was away, I was reading a book that was really for fun. It was a book that was a, a myth. It was a fairy tale story um, that reportedly goes back to a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it's uh, reportedly an, an ancient Celtic story that was passed down orally until it was finally written down in like the, the early 19th century, and I knew the information about the story, and here I was holding a book that had the story in it, and I was reading it. I'm reading this ancient story, and I, I seriously, I could not get over how old this story was. Like every sentence I read, I was just giddy by the thought that I am reading a story that has been retold and reread for, for like 3,000 years. It was a page turner by that fact alone. I just was so blown away by how old this story was. I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking the whole time, and I'm telling Melissa I wouldn't stop talking about it. I was like, I can't believe how ancient this story is. I can't believe how ancient this book is. Meanwhile, I read from the Psalms every single morning, and at one point I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. See, sometimes I think that we've become so spoiled by the accessibility of this book, of the Bible, that we lose sight of the wonder of its ancientness. Because we just have it everywhere. We got it in our pocket, right? We see verses all over the place, and we become so familiar by its accessibility that we forget how ancient, amazingly ancient, the Bible is. And one of the glories of the Bible's ancientness is that it was written in the context of a mythologized world. In other words, when we read the Bible, we should know that it's not just the psalmist and the biblical writers who knew that the world was enchanted, but everybody at the time that the Bible was written knew the world was enchanted. In the biblical world, every human understood that there were invisible forces outside of themselves that were always active. That's what I mean by enchanted. They knew that there was more to the world than what they can see or sense. And one of the negative side effects of our modern technological scientific age is that we have basically bleached our imaginations of that enchanted reality, okay? And my favorite example of this is in parenting. Because when our kids wake us up at 2 a.m. and they say, Dad, there's a monster under my bed. We say, there's no such thing as monsters. Go back to sleep. 
But hold on. If you believe in a spiritual world, and if you believe in the reality of evil, you can't say that. It would be more accurate for us as parents to say, okay, child, there might be a monster under your bed, but Jesus is stronger than the monster. And he commands angels who will do whatever he says, and they're also in the room. It's <laughs> a little parenting advice there, try that. <laughs> Report back on how that goes. We say that, we would say that to our kids because that is true, it's true. And, and when we're immersed in the Bible, we begin to see the world the way the Bible sees the world, which is not the way our culture sees the world. David knew that there were deeper layers to reality than what we're able to perceive, and he wrote from that knowledge. He wrote from that knowledge. It's part of the ancientness of this book, and we need to remember that. That's rail number one. This is an ancient book. Got it? Rail one. Rail two. God is holy. And to say that God is holy is to start with what Pastor Joe said last week, that God is beyond what we can fathom. So speaking of the James Webb Telescope, which Pastor Joe mentioned last week, I just was reading a few days ago that because of this telescope and what it's able to, to see, NASA has now discovered a small gas-like planet orbiting a sun-like star 700 light years away. Now, if one light year is six trillion miles, 700 light years away, do the math. Some of you just blacked out, I know. <laughs> Some of us just blacked out, I should say. That's, that's a lot, like we, that's a lot is what that means, right? It's like, you know, like Joe said, it's like 4.2 trillion miles, which we can't even, what do, we, what do we do with that? The point is that the known universe, this is what, this, the known universe is always becoming more than we thought because we're always finding more, we're always seeing more, we're always discovering more. And if what we can fathom about the known universe is always increasing, then it's helpful to remember that the God who created all of that is greater than what we can fathom. See, I, I appreciate um, Anselm's 11th century description that God is a being than which none greater can be imagined which means that whatever we can imagine or, or think or see, you know, whatever we can imagine, whatever we can perceive, God must be higher. So go as far as you can, and we can keep going. That's the thing with technology, and the, we can keep going. Go as far as you can. Go, think as far and as long as you can. God is always beyond that. He's greater than what we can imagine. And like Pastor Joe said last week, 
you just have to bow before him. Like at some point, you just have to stop and bow before the majesty of God. God is so outside of us. That's what the Bible means when the Bible says that God is holy. The late R.C. Sproul says that when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. God is beyond category and comparison. He is the unactualized actualizer. He is the unmoved mover. He is self-determining, which means he doesn't depend on anything to be who he is, but instead all things are dependent upon him. That's what it means for God to be God. God is God and we are not, which means he sets the rules and he is never subject to anything outside himself. And when we get this, when we sit in this truth, when we sit in this reality, it means really we just have to shut our mouths. It means that actually we don't have the right to disagree with God. We don't have the right to dislike his ways. Now, I'm not saying that we don't. I'm not saying that's not part of the human experience. It is. We see that in the Psalms. We see it in the Psalms, the struggle. But what I'm saying is that however much we are bothered by God, we can never actually assume a position that makes him the object of our scrutiny. He's not, it just doesn't work. It's not possible. And so, when you read the Bible, and you read something in the Bible that rubs you the wrong way, first, no, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. To be bothered by God means you're actually reading his revelation and you're not just making up your own God, okay? So be encouraged first. You're reading an ancient book about a holy God. So what'd you expect, you know? Did you expect you wouldn't be bothered at all? So the first thing, when you're reading, say Psalm 58, for example, when you're reading this Psalm, if or when you are bothered by the fact that according to the will of God, we as the people of God will bathe our blood and will bathe our feet. This is hard to say because it's real. We will bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked. When we read this and we're bothered by it, First, no, it's a grace to be bothered. It's a grace to be bothered. And then second, remembering that we've really got no business being bothered (laughs) because he is God and we are not. You tracking? He is God and we are not. Our disapproval of his will does not injure his untouchable moral purity. God is holy, holy, holy. And when we encounter him in his holiness, when we sit in the reality of his holiness, sometimes we just need to stop. 
That's the second rail, okay? So there are two rails. This is an ancient book, and this is a holy God. An ancient book and a holy God. And so if Psalm 58 is a rocky ride for us, if it's bumpy, if it's uncomfortable, my first guess is that we're, we're missing something to do with these two rails. Something's off with the two rails. Check the rails, okay? So we start here with the rails, and now we can look closer at the psalm. Got it? The two rails, and now we're digging into Psalm 58. And as I already mentioned here, central to Psalm 58 is a series of imprecations. David is asking God to curse his enemies. And to be clear, this is not something that David is doing lightly, okay? This is not a normal way to pray. It's not normal. And I say that because there are 150 psalms, and most of the psalms are not like this one. Now, we've seen imprecations before. Going back a few years here, we've seen lots of imprecatory prayers sprinkled into a lot of psalms. For example, um, way back in Psalm 5, verse 10, David prays, make them bear their guilt, speaking of his enemies, make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. We just saw a few weeks ago, Psalm 54, verse 5, David says, He, God, will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness put an end to them, he prays. So we've seen single lines like this before, but it's seldom in the whole Psalter that we find multiple imprecatory lines back to back. There's only a few Psalms that do this, and Psalm 58 is one of them. So this is not normal for the Psalms but it is legitimate. It's in the Bible. And David, remember also, in this section of Psalms, as we've been saying the last several weeks, in this section of Psalms, David is meant to be a model for us of faithfulness to God, which is expressed in how he prays. So he is modeling for us faithfulness in how to pray, which must include then the prayer we find here in Psalm 58. And so in that light, in Psalm 58, I think we find here three guiding principles for how to pray imprecations, okay? Three guiding principles. We're gonna spend the rest of our time looking at these three things. These are three guiding principles that David models for us when it comes to asking God to curse the wicked, all right? Here's the first guiding principle. The wicked are truly wicked. Now, it's important that we see who David's talking about here. He's referring to a highly sophisticated enemy that has power and authority. Look at verse 1. David starts by addressing his enemy. Verse 1, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? And the word for gods here could also be translated as rulers. Some translations put mighty ones. Most commentators agree that David most likely has human rulers in mind. The main idea here is that these are evil rulers. These are individuals who are wicked and who have authority to act wickedly for the harm of others. That's the second line in verse 1. Look at the second line there. These evil rulers, they they do not judge the children of men uprightly. They are devising wrong 
and dealing out violence. And we should hear in that sophistication. This is premeditated harm. These evil rulers are calculating how they might obstruct justice and mistreat the innocent. This enemy in Psalm 58, in high-handed rebellion against God, intends to ruin things. That's what they're doing, verses one and two. And then in verses three and four, David goes on to describe what they are like. Listen to verse three, look at verse three. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So David says that this enemy, these evil rulers, he calls them wicked here in verse three. They are, listen to this, estranged before they are even born. The wicked are right away, even as infants lost and ruined by the fall. The wicked bear the curse of original sin, like we all do, okay? This may, I think this makes this psalm especially interesting because David is describing the wicked in verse three, who he's, he's speaking these curses on these people. He describes them in verse three, but the description he gives here in verse three is actually a fitting description for every single human being because we are all born in sin. We are all born bent away from God in rebellion and we all lie. In fact, the latest research on lying, which is apparently a thing, if you knew that, they've determined that the average human being hears around 200 lies every single day, okay? And that's counting big lies, that's counting little, I don't know if that's true, I'm just, I don't necessarily endorse that stat, that's just what I read. So all you now are getting worried about everyone sitting around you and the conversations you're gonna have later. And No, I don't know, that's what I read. So, um, but there's a lot of little lies is the idea, little white lies as it were, right? Big lies, it all counts, all those things count. And what's fascinating about it is that, and the reason why it's so pervasive is that humans apparently start doing, they start lying at an early age. Little kids can lie. I remember the first blatant lie I ever told. I remember it. I was, I think, four, maybe five. And one morning for breakfast, I told my dad I wanted a glass of milk. So my dad poured me a glass of milk. But once he poured the glass of milk, I decided I didn't want the glass of milk. Because you know how kids are. And my dad said, son, you got to drink the milk. And I said, okay, dad, I'll drink the milk, but I got to go to the bathroom and I'm going to take the milk with me in the bathroom. And he let me do it. And I took the milk in the bathroom and I walked out in about three seconds. And my glass of milk that was filled to the top was completely empty. And my dad says to me, Jonathan, did you drink that? And I told him, nothing close to a milk mustache on my face. I said to my dad, yeah, dad, 
The milk was great. Yum. I love milk. Milk's the best. Got milk? You know. You know. And my dad goes into the bathroom to check, and I had forgot to flush. And then I received what's called in the ancient world a whooping, okay? <laughs> Which is why I remember the moment I told my first blatant lie. And I just want to say to my dad, if he listens to the sermon, I want to give my dad some credit, okay? Because if my kids would have done that, I would have thought they're psycho, all right? Because it was a bold-faced lie that somehow wasn't necessarily a smart lie, but I, I thought I could get away with it. At four years old, I, I thought I, I could get away with this lie. Nobody taught me how to lie, apparently, right? I just kind of learned it on my own. I, somehow at four, I came with this bentness away from God, this, this ability to create alternative realities and to try to sell them to people, to deceive people in ways that would benefit me. It's fascinating. Lying. We're liars, see. We're, 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 we're born in sin. We're, we're born with this propensity to lie, which means verse 3 here hits kind of close to home. When I read verse 3, I think, that kind of sounds like me, Right? And so we, we have to ask the question. This is the question we have to ask. Is there any difference between the wicked in Psalm 58 and just any typical human sinner? Yes and no. Okay? And we got to be really careful here, so track with me. The answer is yes. There's no difference. We're all the same in that we are all sinners we are totally depraved creatures from the start. Every part of us is tainted by sin, and apart from God's grace, our hearts are always bent away from Him in rebellion. That is true of every single human being, and because of that, every single human being deserves God's judgment, which is why we need Jesus. That's the point, see? We all need to be saved by Jesus, from our sin and its consequences. And at the same time, although everyone is a sinner and totally depraved, nobody is depraved totally or even as depraved as others. In other words, we could be worse sinners than we are and there are worse sinners than us out there. Now, I imagine that we bristle a little bit to hear that because if we're just honest, we are uncomfortable with any thought of any kind of inequality. We, we just want everything equal, right? We're all just equal sinners. Nobody's worse. We're all just equally bad. Everybody's equally bad. Now, you know that's not true. Nobody actually thinks that. Again, we are all sinners and we all deserve God's wrath, but there are some humans more wicked than others. Some of you true crime podcast fans are like, absolutely, I, you're tracking right now, right? 
There are some worse than others. And I had to turn to a, a pre-modern commentary to get some help here. And I, I went to John Calvin, writing in the 1500s, and he comments on Psalm 58. This is his commentary on Psalm 58. He says, he says, yeah, these are especially wicked people. And then he goes on to list out in 16th century fashion, there are three classes of unregenerate sinners. He says, everyone comes into the world stained with sin, and there is, a, there, there is, however, a secret restraint upon most men which prevents them from proceeding all lengths in iniquity. That's what it means to be totally depraved, but not depraved totally. We are not as bad as we could be. Calvin writes, the stain of original sin cleaves to the whole human family without exception. But experience proves that some are characterized by modesty and decency of outward deportment. This is class one. The class one, class one of unregenerate sinners. These are decent sinners. They're still dead in their sins. They're still gonna face the judgment of God, but they're decent folks, they're decent people. They're not horrible people, they're just lost. Class one. Then Calvin says, others, are wicked, though. They're wicked, yet, at the same time, within bounds of moderation. This is class number two. These are our wicked sinners who do a lot of sinful things, but still they are not excessively vile. That's the word Calvin uses. Like, they still have a line they won't cross. That's class two unregenerate sinner. Then Calvin says there's a third class. In the third class, these are so depraved in disposition as to be intolerable members of society. Calvin calls them monsters of iniquity. These are the ones they make Netflix documentaries about, right? You get it? Monsters of iniquity, especially wicked people. And Calvin says, that's who David's talking about. That's who David is speaking about here in Psalm 58. They have venom like poisonous snakes. They're like an adder or a cobra that refuses any kind of outside influence. In other words, the wicked on whom David prays these curses are truly wicked. And one of the reasons that I think this kind of praying is rare is because it's not every day that you encounter this kind of evil enemy. Okay, so you gotta hear this, all right? Psalm 58, this is probably not your boss. Don't get any ideas here, all right? This is not your boss. This is probably not your grumpy neighbor. It's not the guy who cut you off in traffic this morning, okay? This, this, this is not, he's not talking about people who you may disagree with, okay? This, this is probably not even people who have harmed you. The people described in Psalm 58 are truly wicked people. And that's the first guiding principle when it comes to praying imprecations. David is not just dishing out curses. No, okay? 
These are truly wicked people. Number two, the second guiding principle, God has the power and authority to condemn the wicked. Verse six is the center of the psalm. In Psalm 58, like Psalm 57 last week, it has a chiastic structure, which means it's a cheeseburger, remember? And the meat is in the middle, and the meat here is verse six. And what's fascinating is that, is that it's like verse six is a, a chiasm itself. Look at verse six for a second. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. Do you see how verse six begins and ends with oh, Lord, with, oh God and then oh Lord? That's a chiastic structure. It's meant to emphasize what David is praying. This is like basically what David's doing here as he's cranking the volume up, okay? For emphasis, break their teeth, he says. Tear out their fangs. David is asking God to disarm them, remove their power to cause harm, evaporate them, blunt them, disintegrate them, frustrate them, sweep them away. And the reason David is asking God to do this is because he knows that he lacks the power and authority to do it himself. Quickly here, there's a difference between power and authority. Power is the strength to do something. Authority is the right to do something. And David knows that in this case, he has neither. He does not have the strength to defeat these enemies. And even if he did, he does not have the right to condemn them. Only God can do that. God has the power and authority to condemn the wicked. David does not, which is why David prays, which means that this prayer is from a deep faith in God. He's praying in faith, the kind of faith we saw in 56. Deep assurance of who God is. Over the last couple of weeks as I've been studying Psalm 58 and digging into imprecations, um, I was surprised by how many of those consider this kind of praying to be a sign of bitterness in David? One person I read said that rather than David pray that God tear out the fangs of the wicked, David should have prayed that God redeem their fangs. That's the way he should have prayed. And this person said that what we're supposed to do when we read, when we read Psalm 58, we're actually supposed to read the Psalm and then pray for people like David who harbor vengeful desires. Now apparently this person's smarter than the Bible, okay? So I got a category for that, and I'll spend a lot of time with that. We shouldn't either, okay? Because David in this psalm, if we're reading close enough, he's not displaying bitterness. He's actually displaying trust in the character of God. He knows that God is good and just and mighty and that God will always do what is right. And so knowing that and knowing that the wicked here are truly wicked, David's imprecations in Psalm 56 is his entrusting this whole thing to God. That's what he's doing. What David is doing, he's actually modeling for us what the Apostle Paul commands in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, right? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to who? The wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what David's doing here. David is doing that. David is saying, okay, Lord, 
it's yours. You, you take it. I'm not trying to take this thing into my own hands. I'm not trying to go all Liam Neeson on these guys. I can't. I don't have the strength. I'm not going to do that. I'm not. This is yours. I give it to you. I'm leaving this to you because vengeance belongs to you. That's what David's doing in Psalm 58. And this kind of praying, listen, it's harder than you think. It's harder than you think because in our bones, you know this. You know this. We want to avenge, right? We want to see them pay. We want to make them pay. We want to be God. We do. We do. But no. Faith in God. Trust in God. Christian character. It leaves the vengeance to God. God is the one, the only one, who has the power and the authority to condemn the wicked, and one day he will. And that's the third and final guiding principle here. One day God will condemn the wicked. All right, here we are, verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So not only does God have the power and authority to condemn the wicked, but one day he most certainly will condemn the wicked. There is a day in the future, an event, an event that is coming when Jesus will return with his mighty angels in flaming fire and he will have vengeance on every sinner who rejects the gospel. Every class of sinner who has refused his grace on that day will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. They will go to hell. Hell. But we, we as those who have been made righteous by Jesus, we as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ for the glory of God alone. We will see Jesus' judgment on the wicked and we're going to rejoice. The scene will not sicken us. It will not disturb us. It will not discomfort us because everything about it will be comprehensively, exhaustively right. In fact, look at verses 10 and 11 here. It's amazing in the Psalm. Verses 10 and 11 are the exact opposite of the situation in verses one and two. On the last day, the one true God, the one true ruler of all, will decree what is right and he will judge the children of man uprightly. And the righteousness of that judgment will be so manifest that all of mankind will acknowledge it. That's verse 11, which I do think is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I think David is referring here to end time judgment. And the mankind he mentions represents all of mankind. This is, I think, righteous and wicked. This is the moment when, because of God's judgment on the last day, because of God's judgment, all of mankind, everybody will say, 
God is real. The gospel is true. And everything we did in the world mattered. It mattered. It meant something. One day, that will be the most obvious thing there is. See, verse 11 is describing our great vindication. Verse 11 is a, it's a, a snap out of it verse. It just cuts through the fog. It wakes us up. And it's saying, hey, one day you are going to stand before the judgment of God and you will know on that day that all of this counted. It all mattered. It all meant something. What you do in this life means something. That's what verse 11 means. And see, Christian, on the last day, when we are confronted with that, everything will have been worth it. Everything. I think at least one of the reasons that we're gonna rejoice at this judgment is because in that moment, our hope will be reality. Right, like, like our faith now will then be sight. And we will know when we see the judgment of God. In the most literal way, we will know, we will see it, we will know it. But for the grace of God, there go I, we'll know it. We'll know that the difference, the only real consequential difference between us and the condemned is Jesus. It's that Jesus was condemned for us already on the cross. That's it. That's it. That's everything to us. The wrath of God will be poured out on sin, but it's not going to be poured out on you and me, Christian, because Jesus has already taken that wrath in our place. Jesus suffered the judgment we deserve on that day. Jesus suffered that judgment for us on the cross. That's what it means when we say he saved us. That's what it means that Jesus is a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. See, we sing that now. We sing it with our, our poor, lisping, stammering tongues. But one day, on this day, we will sing it anew with unimaginable clarity. Unimaginable clarity. And so in order to pray, imprecations faithfully, the way that David does in Psalm 58. We need to keep these three guiding principles in view. Number one, the the wicked are truly wicked. Number two, only God has the power and authority to condemn the wicked. Number three, one day God will condemn the wicked. And on that day, we who have been saved by Jesus, we will know the mercy of God more clearly and tangibly than ever before. (laughs) That's what brings us to the table. 
We, we come to the table now with all that in mind because at this table, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are remembering our hope. We remember the death of Jesus for us, that he gave his body for us, that he shed his blood for us so that we can look forward to the last day in hope. God has been so merciful to us, church. So merciful. And if you know his mercy this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus, if your only hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, come and eat, come and drink, come give Jesus thanks with us. We'll serve the bread now, hold it, then I'll come back up and we'll eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.